Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Companies and careers can both follow very different paths, depending on the factors that motivate them. But according to Bill Scheninger, co-author of Beyond Performance 2.0, if all we track are short-term performance wins, we're not setting ourselves up for sustainable health. And he has decades of research to back that up. In this episode of Hack the Process, Bill will tell us why it's essential to start with aspirations instead of fears when driving cultural change, what differentiates companies that achieve sustainable success, and how his own unconventional background in education helped him thrive at McKinsey for almost two decades. Today I'm talking with Bill Scheninger, and he is the co-author of Beyond Performance 2.0. Bill, how are you doing today? Uh, really good. Thank you for having me. <laughs> good. I'm glad to have you here. And I know Beyond Performance was a book that came out something about 10 years ago, and now this is the 2.0 version. Yeah, that's right. We put the first one out, and the big idea there was that organizations that really did well and sort of sustained their excellence, right? You know, we call it the ultimate competitive advantage, was around being healthy. And the big idea was the companies that did really well managed for performance as well as health. In the plain language, they managed how they made money and they equally managed how they ran the place. What was interesting to us was that in the subsequent decade, our clients said, yeah, we get the idea. That's great. But this changing how you run the place part, that's actually really hard. And so we'd like to focus more on that. And so, you know, we've been running what we think is the longest ongoing research study into how you make change work. And it's, it's really a nice combination of facts and research, as well as belief based on our practice. And we thought it was time to bring it back and update it and, and focus out much more on the change management portion of it. It's interesting. When you, t when you talk about performance and health, I think a lot of people conflate those two. Well, I think so. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Well, one, just empirically, many people assume that if you're high performing, you're healthy. We certainly know from the human metaphor that it's not the case, right? And so, you know, you can have, it, you can have both of them disconnected. In a very real mass sense, we're finding strong correlations and strong relationships between health leading to performance. And we've tested for the causality and the linkage there. And it does go health to performance. And, you know, if you think about it, if you just change the words, here's the, here's the summary of the finding. If you run the place better, you make more money. Now, when I say it like that, that seems like Captain Obvious walked into the room. Run the organization better, make more money. Because running the organization better includes things like setting direction ensuring individual accountability, making sure people feel like they're part of the decision-making, having adequate leadership, the right skills in the right places, keeping tabs on what's going on in the outside world, knowing how to learn and change, you know, that kind of stuff, right? The essence of what you might do every day as a leader or what you would hope to happen, here we're saying there actually is a science, not just an art, behind changing collectively how you do that, right? So that's the essence of this. And it sounds like that's fairly uniform across companies, whereas something like performance might be unique to industries and even unique to individual companies. These health indicators sound like they could be things that you could make more broad generalizations about. 
Well, for sure, the way to measure them is reasonably common. And the good news is we have about 70 years of organizational psychology to draw on. There's a large group of Germans that decided to study the behavior of individuals within organizations, and we've been able to build on that. That's nice, okay? You know, that's, it's not like a new made-up science. The interesting part is how across organizations and how within organizations, the way in which the place is run does vary. You know, almost like if you replace the word with culture, some companies have very strong, meaning dense and strongly held cultures. Others have rather loose confederation where different business units or different countries have those cultures. And what's interesting is the interplay. You know, do you have a prevailing sense of how we run the place or is it actually quite variable? That's a confounding factor to trying to change it. Are you changing one or are you changing multiple, right? And that's, that's an interesting dynamic to get at up front to really understand and baseline well, what are you actually starting with? That's true. And it's certainly not something that somebody, for example, in a leadership role, in a CEO role, actually has the authority to make a change about. It's more like something that happens and the leader has to influence it along the way or be carried along by it. Well, for sure, if you don't manage it, it will manage you. And that's not intended to be trite. I mean, it's happening every day, whether you do something to it or not. I think the challenge for leaders is to get their arms around the fact that they do have a unique role. I mean, they can try to shape, they can articulate an aspiration or a desire. Right. But then very quickly, they do have to figure out how to just how to involve, not just engage leaders, leaders of leaders and much deeper in the organization and quite specifically opinion leader, which increasingly in a world that's largely digital, largely digitally enabled social interaction. The value to a person in terms of how they view social opinion leaders. So it may just be someone that you send an email to and say, hey, what do you think about this? Same kind of interaction that happens when you look online and see, geez, those people are like me. Maybe I'll try that product. Same thing happens at work. So one of the things leaders are trying to come to grips with now is it's not just the hierarchy. It's also the social hierarchy, the network. And who's, in, you know, in plain language, it's who controls the water cooler. And you better know who they are because they're working every day, whether you are or not. <laughs> That's true. The notion of dealing with these influencers, you immediately think maybe YouTube celebrities, but you're talking about internal influencers within a company. They're there every day. It's amazing how easy it is to model it. I mean, you know, it can come down to one question. Like we used to call it snowball, which we then changed to influencer because that was a, you know, a far more creative topic. It was one question like, who do you go to to figure out what's going on? Or whose opinion do you trust? And just give us up the 10 names. And every time we got a new name, that person got the question. You leave it open for like two weeks. And before you know it, you knew who was critical. You know, you could count the hours in and the hours out. Pockets of the organization that were completely islanded. People who, by their nature, were knowledge mongers and relationship mongers, and they would close off everything behind them. You know, like sometimes you put someone in a leadership role, and as soon as they get there, the walls go up, and the headquarters is the enemy, and it's like, okay, you have to pledge fealty to me, right? And so you can map all of that. You know, it's like having an unbelievable insight into what you're trying to tinker with. So when you combine that with a good, robust measurement of, you know, how leaders and managers are behaving, now you have a real MRI. So you know who matters, and you know how they're behaving. Now you're informed for change management. It's not just guesswork and platitudes in an email. And it sounds like the ability to do this has been enhanced by electronic communications, by digital media. It's probably something that it's a phenomenon that's been there all along. It's just something now we can observe it and now we can map it. The ability to measure this has always been there. It's been constrained by quantitative analytics, for sure. Difficulty with data collection, right, for sure. But, you know, I think we've gotten smarter about what matters and what doesn't, not asking 500 items, you know, getting it under 100, getting what really matters, but trying to model the system, not just the narrow thing. I mean, one of the interesting things that's happened in this space in the last 20 years is the fascination with moving from satisfaction to engagement and the belief that you could get anything you wanted to know on 12 questions, right? Or, you know, what's my net promoter score? Well, I don't know. What is it? <laughs> you don't know why you have it. I mean, it's like asking, you know, asking someone, do you have a best friend at work? 
They may or may they may not. That may even correlate with really interesting things. It doesn't tell you what to do. I mean, the challenge with two generations of leaders that have been raised on correlations and not good analytics is something as simple as this. If you and I were to chart asphalt sales and ice cream sales, we would see they are unbelievably correlated. And you might faultily lead to the conclusion, every time someone paves a road, they eat ice cream. Or you could model temperature and go, hey, funny enough, when it's warm, people want ice cream, and that's when it's really conducive to doing infrastructure work. I mean, you can miss the whole story if you don't actually get what matters. So that's what I think one of the real values here is you try to model the whole system, you figure out what, what matters, and then you only focus on the things that matter. You don't chase low scores just for the sake of chasing low scores. I mean, there's a lot of folks who've been run down the rabbit hole of engagement where they'll have you know three or four questions that are low, and they'll have every leader come up with their own action plan not coordinated, not concerted, just their own about low scores. Well, what does that get you? That gets you a thousand sample sizes of one if you have a thousand leaders. Or you have one plan and you say, folks, hey, let's get at this together and move in concert. So we're, we're pushing more for that. I can see the value of it, but of course, it's much, much, much harder because it's so much easier to optimize for a number that you have in your head or a number that you've got, you can track on a piece of paper that you know relates to your specific line of business, for example, without actually thinking about that contextual situation. 100%. I mean, if you think about what's the real challenge of change, organizations are not beings. They don't have corpus. Organizations are comprised of people. And you have people who otherwise would do what they want to do and what's in their own best interest or maybe some one, one degree removed, maybe their immediate team or their business unit, you know, wherever they have identity and affiliation to. Very rarely is it just the overall. So the challenge with that is you have to get all those people to try to sign up for something that's bigger than them. And that, you know, that in our mind is like the first step of a really critical approach, which is, yes, you're going to manage for both making money and how you run the place, but it does have to start with the aspiration first, not the deficit. That's actually a pretty big sticking point for us. We find that many of our uh, professional colleagues you know, people who are in this space, they're largely deficit-based. They have grown three generations of managers who have to talk about what's the burning platform, you know, what's on fire, what's the case for change. And all those things are interesting. Don't get me wrong. But again, we know from medicine and from education that deficit-based motivation fails in the long run, right? If you were to look just at like heart patients and you were to say, if you don't stop this, you're going to die, recidivism rate is still incredibly high, just on something simple like smoking. But if you get people motivated and say, do you want to see your daughter walk down the aisle? Do you want to be at your son's graduation? The aspiration and the motivation behind that more positive energy, dramatically higher adoption rates. Same thing happens in organizations. As soon as you go down the road of fear, because that's what the burning platform is, it is fear. We're going to go out of business. We're going to be consumed by the enemy. You're going to lose your job. People are always going, hey, are we done yet? Are we done? Have we, have we slayed the dragon? Can we stop? They're not interested in the, in the transformation. They're interested in survival. Well, we happen to believe that thriving is a far better way to be than surviving. And that's why you start with an aspiration. Doesn't mean you don't take a baseline. Of course you do. Just after you set where you're going. And I'm sure that aspiration is, is unique to each company and to each industry. Well, for sure, you can probably find patterns, right? I mean, there are just some things like, is it industry dominance? Is it growth? The new push on purpose? Can we manage to and take into account, you know, a multiple spectrum of stakeholders? So, I mean, there's, there's types, but I do think one of the things that's important is how coherent is it and does it resonate with all the stakeholders? There, I do think is some value, right? It's, it has to be, obviously, it has to be central to the employees. It also should be central to the people who are writing checks for you. Capital's not for free. I mean, we've been in such a long run where no one bothered to figure out the weighted average cost of capital that we sort of internalized in our head that somehow capital's for free. It is not. Someone is giving you that money and they do expect a return. 
they're more likely to be conducive to giving you more money if they love what you're working on. That makes sense. And it sounds like a philosophy that resonates certainly through Silicon Valley, where you look to your venture capitalist to not only supply you with money, but also supply you with relationships and to supply you with people to support you inside the company. That relationship capital is critical there. You'd hope so. I mean, sometimes, you know, we used to say maybe even a little pejoratively, you wanted people to get religion, right? But what that really meant was you wanted you wanted them actually emotionally buy in, effectively buy in, you know, not just buy in with their wallet, but buy in with their heart. There's something to that. There's no doubt about it, right? That's why I think this aspiration stuff is a, is a really big deal, right? No doubt about it. And it's, it's the thing that you start with when you, I think you have five points in your book that for taking a company through. Could you go over those a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, it always starts at the top where we say we're always going to manage for both performance and health. You do both, right? And you do them at the same time with equal rigor. An aspiration on the performance side, you got to set a number big enough that it matters. Number could be profit, number could be growth, could be customers, could be people served. If you're Oxfam, it could be the number of people who have fresh water. I'm clearly a product of living in, in the United Kingdom in the early part of the century, right? When that was that was a big deal. But whatever whatever your impact is, it's the number, the way you count your impact needs to be big enough that people are going to put their feet on the floor in the morning and go, yeah, I'm going to go there to work. It's worth my time. On the health side, you know, it's as simple as saying, what's our recipe for running? What do we believe about the world? You know, are we going to be an academy company where we grow an amazing group of leaders knowing that we hire more than we need and we're going to lose people to other firms because we're going to be viewed as the best training ground on the planet? Maybe. Or it could be you're a market shaper, you know, which just says, hey, we're going to have such such a handle on the pulse of our customers and our competitors and our markets that we're going to pick and choose the spots. We're going to go first. We're going to come up with new products and services. And we're going to have the underlying financial acumen to know what works and what doesn't and get out. I mean, an interesting contrast to this is Apple Jobs V1 versus Jobs V2. Jobs V1, super products that always had one kind of signature flaw, like not enough memory or unbelievably expensive, mm -hmm. and not a huge amount of financial discipline. For sure, Scully's arrival was intended actually to bring some of that discipline, led ultimately to the clash and the unwinding. Jobs V2, products that were perfect in a market at a time when anyone could fathom, oh my God, all of my music in my hand. A machine that's sitting on the desktop does not look like a box, it looks like a piece of art. Right? The idea that this thing that's of true convergence I don't need four devices, I need one, right? That sort of stuff, right? And at the same time as they commanded a price premium, never moved on price, absolutely had their supply chain nailed, didn't carry the working capital of production, and at one point became the most valuable company on the planet. That would be shaping the market, no doubt, right? You know, bringing that to life. Other companies don't have that luxury. You know, they're in a competitive space and there's a lot of people in what they do, retail banking, downstream oil, you know, where you are, right? Martinez is there, Richmond is there. You know, there's a bunch of refineries all around you. That's a competitive space, man, right? And in some cases, you could argue a market, particularly in your state, but elsewhere, where the demand for automotive gas, MoGas in their parlance, is going down, right? So you still have to produce jet fuel or aviation fuel, but how can you do the bio stuff? And you think, okay, this is competitive. And there's a lot of people doing it, and it's capital intense. So we better learn how to grow and get better and continuously improve every day. So in that model, the only thing you really can rely on is the people doing the work. So they're the frontline leaders, dramatically more important. And it's how do you involve and engage the front line saying, hey, you do this every day. How can we get a little bit better? Because a little bit better every day adds up. That's a very different ethos, right? And then the last recipe is what we call talent knowledge core. And that's largely for the places that acquire brains. You know, it's, you see it in professional services. You see it in the iBanks. You see it in R&D shops. Kind of place where really the only thing you have that's worth anything is your employer brand and the horsepower you can bring in, right? And so those four, believe it or not, when we looked across all the companies and we've been studying health for, I don't know, maybe... Five years at that point, this is in 2007, because, you know, a colleague and I wrote the instrument in 2002, tracked the, uh, the data for five years and then started saying, were there patterns? 
And it was, we didn't constrain it at all. We let the data take us where it was. And it was remarkable how clear there was just four basic recipes. And the reason we belabor this is because we think much like distilling a purpose or distilling a strategy, distilling your worldview for how you're going to run the place matters because it should help people decide whether or not they want to join up with you. What kind of place are you going to be? Give it some coherence. If you can imagine, you know, that continuous improvement execution edge one, that might be a great place to be if you're a frontline employee. Like, wow, we're actually involved in it. But if you're not in that kind of place and you're just on the receiving end of missives from someone in the invisible palace who's constantly pounding on you, that might not be a great place. So, you know, we're just kind of hoping to use that as a way of saying, paint the picture of where you're going. And then paint that picture in such a way that it really influences the culture of the company as a whole, because those same people could be working at any one of those companies and they come in with their own motivations and their own orientations. And if they're not brought along with the culture there, then that whole direction gets lost because they're not really participating. Absolutely. I mean, think about the value of imprinting. You know, if you and I were to go to a football game at the Niners new stadium and you see a great play, what are we going to do? We're going to jump up and down and cheer. I mean, I realize that's a tough reach right now because you're not sure how Garoppolo is going to play. But okay, bear with me. Let's assume it's going well. But you cheer wildly at a pinnacle performance. If you and I were at the opera, let's say we were at the great cool arts building in San Fran with the Greek colonnade, right? We were there. That's the end of an aria. And they really hit the crescendo. We might give, might give a, polite, a polite golf clap. Maybe. How would we know? You know because everyone around you is doing what they're supposed to do. Right. And so this is so in a place where you have an amazing culture that's really ingrained and strong, the cues are all around you. Of course, that's what makes it really hard to change. Right. When it's not that and you have pockets of clapping and pockets of cheering and pockets of people not tuning out on their darn phones, it's easier to change because it's not it's not nearly as concentrated and generally accepted. When everybody's doing their own thing, there's no critical mass of anyone. It's much easier to drive right through it. When you have a group that are really committed to the way they've done it, way harder because you're messing with identity at that point and broadly held identity. That's true. And at that point, there might be more value in figuring out what that identity is and playing to it rather than trying to change it. A hundred percent. I'd much rather, if I run in one of those, I'd much rather go, can we make this work? Because, you know, the personality transplant for like a 200,000 people organization is a little tough. So you, you work in a large organization and it has a personality and an identity. And as I understand it, your own background doesn't mesh as cleanly as that with that identity as some other people. No, not even close. I'm a product of a few things. One, when I was hired, was at the height of the war for talent because of the dot-com era. No doubt about it. So I was in a PhD program in Auburn, and I was out on the market looking for faculty jobs, and I wasn't quite done yet, or ABD in PhD part lines, all but dissertation. Mm-hmm. It's not actually a degree, even though most students would you know, act like this. <laughs> I, I certainly wanted to be paid like I was done, although I was not. So I was out on the market. I had a job offer in hand from St. Joe's. And that would have gotten me close to home, which had been great. But I was irritated that they were discounting me. So I got the dean of Auburn to hire me to help run and build a distance MBA programs, which is quite lucrative for colleges. And very trendy at that time. Very much so. We were still doing, we were just converting from tape to DVD. And then I saw in the Chronicle of Higher Education an ad from McKinsey for an academic fellow for org theory and org design. And I thought, well, I'm kind of an eye guy, individual, but I, you know, I can fluff my way through that. That's okay. I mean, it's all, it's all org. And I sent my uh, resume to them and they replied reasonably quickly and said, hey, thanks a lot, but we actually want a full professor. We want somebody with more of a scholarly track record, which was a nice way of saying, you've got four or five articles and that's nice, Skippy, but we'd like somebody with 40 or 50. Thanks. However, they said, we hope you don't mind. We forwarded your resume on to our colleagues in London who are hiring. We think they'd like your background. It's pretty cool. Because I had, I had initially, 
I had ran a unit, a 25-bed unit at residential psychiatric treatment center for five years, right out of undergraduate. Got an MBA at night, you know, from Moravian, not particularly prestigious, but needed to know how we ran it, and then went to Auburn. So I had some experience, you know, sort of in the gist of how this works in real life. And then the London thing was amazing. They rang me up. I went over to London twice for interviews, what seemed to be about like 25 interviews, and I was hired into McKinsey. So that was not the normal avenue in. And then once I got there, I was very fortunate. They'd hired a guy in the year before to run the European practice who was looking for folks who were more grounded, frankly, in you know IO psychology, in OB, in management. I fit that mold. I was reasonably good out of the gate with clients. I was a horrible consultant, terrible. McKinsey's very top down in their thinking and likes to assert hypothesis. And, and you know I can handle the issue tree part because building a model to test you know, whether it's regression or anything, you do have to, it's basically an issue tree, you're just doing it this way and writing out the factors that matter. I could do that part. I really struggled with asserting an opinion without being able to prove it. And so that probably took me about six months, maybe a year to get that beaten out of me. So that was painful. I was on the wrong end. I, I, was, not, I was not used to getting that kind of feedback so regularly. It worked out okay. It doesn't sound like asserting an opinion without being able to prove it is actually a good practice. Yeah, yeah, it is. The issue, the issue, it is a good practice, particularly given if you were to talk to people today in the org practice, and I've co-led the org practice globally, been responsible for like all of our tools and all of our knowledge. It is a good practice, but you know, being okay to assert a hypothesis that needs to be tested, that's okay too. And clients shouldn't have to wait, you know, six weeks or six months till you have all the data. Okay, that's a, that's a better way to frame that. Yeah, at some point, you know, you know what you're going to know. And you got to get on with it. I needed to get comfortable with that. At its core, I had a mindset of, I don't have the pedigree of the people here and I can't afford to be wrong. And that became a limiting mindset. You know, so I needed to get over that. How did you get yourself over that? Because that, that's one of those hurdles that people find challenging. And often it's one of the things that makes people change careers. I had a, a partner that I was working with. It was an exceptional guy. One time we were, when we were writing the OHI, the Org Health Index, I was belaboring some point in proving it and said, Bill, we all believe you. Actually, we all always believe you. The only person you're arguing with right now is you. So why don't you just stop? Because <laughs> we believe you. I was like, oh, okay. And that was like unbelievably liberating, right? Which was, I don't have to prove it to the nth degree. They're going to listen. And so as soon as that was the case, we can immediately go to, well, how do we bring this to life? And how do we do it? And what are our options? And then just over time, I got better. I got better at leaving the pursuit of perfection and accepting that, you know, if it's structured well enough and you understand where the outer markers of what unacceptable is and what's okay, dive for in there and get going. That pursuit of perfection, I think, is something that gets in the way of performance and health in a lot of companies. Oh, so much. It is remarkable. So for some people, particularly those in insanely high levels of work achievement on the personality level, they just have an aching need to be the best. And even if they already are the best, to be better. Now, for others, that paralysis just through fretting about not being it is a convenient way of not actually doing it. You know, there's so people who really like to, they like to talk about it and they like to think about it, but they don't actually want to do it. And, you know, getting getting folks past that's a big, I mean, we, we talk about this in terms of in step two, what we call, you know, assess, saying once you have the aspiration, what's getting in the way, right? You know, there's the capability side. Do we have the skills we need? And the mindset side, we end up spending far more time on the mindset. And they broadly, you know, three things, right? Not allowed, can't, and won't. Not allowed is it's not my job or it's not how we do it around here. And that one's really tough, particularly in those strong cultures I was talking about, right? Sort of distilled norms. I can't is I don't have the time. I don't have the resources or I don't know how. If someone is telling you they don't have the time or the resources, what they're really doing, as we called in Auburn, they're grin effing you. They have a big smile on their face and they're saying, oh, there is no effing way I'm doing what you want. I'd love to. God, I'd love to help you. But I don't have the time. <laughs> Can't spare any resources because their list is different than your list and they're solving for their list. So you haven't actually landed the aspiration. 
Because if you'd landed the aspiration, you'd have an agreed upon set of priorities. So, you know, that's where we get down to that. And then the last one is I don't want to, which is actually really hard. And that's why there's always some people who are left behind when, when large scale transformation happens, because they really don't want to. And if they don't want to, having them identify that and go for something that they do want is, and maybe it's on along your path and maybe it's not. Or it may not be, right? I mean, I think the best thing, you know, from an empathy and care and compassion for everyone's standpoint, you're doing them a solid by helping them get to that decision. Not you making it for them, helping them get to it, right? Because some are like, you're messing with my relationships, my legacy, my power, my influence, my ability to perceive to be, you know, successful, whatever. It's almost always fear deficit based. Some get over it because you can help them see their way to it. Sometimes it's just a straight efficacy thing. But a lot of times it's, I don't want to be part of this. You've changed the essence of what it is and I want to be part of it. No problem. And you're doing, you're doing everyone right by calling it early. You were stepped into, you found yourself in a situation where the people around you had different competencies, different backgrounds than what you brought to the table. And you decided you did want to be a part of it. I did. Yeah. I loved it. If we roll the clock back a little bit, I promise this is the only tearjerker part of it. So my dad died when I was really young. I was a career 88 to 92 student in high school, but would test really, really well in standardized testing. And part of that was because I refused to do any work. I'd just show up, I'd listen, and I'd take the test. I wouldn't study. And that worked really well in high school. And I did not have to work particularly hard. I got into a, I got into, <laughs> into a really good school, and I was going to play football and wrestle because I, I had wrestled from you know really little on up, elementary school on up, and then football. So I was going to do both. And they asked me to take a physics two achievement test, and I got like a 580 or something, and I freaked out. So, oh my God, I can't do this. It was just because our physics guy was big time on kinetics and he didn't do much on electrical. So I crushed the kinetics part, but I didn't know what I was doing on the electrical part. But that made me convinced I couldn't handle an engineering curriculum. So I, I said to my parents, oh, I, I know they accepted me, ME, but I don't think I can do it. So I want to go to school for business. My parents, who were teen parents when I was born, 17 and 19, neither of them went to college. No one in my family went to college. And they said, at this time, so this is 1987, it's 35 grand a year. If you're not going pre-med or engineering, you're not going. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I decided they don't know what they're talking about because they didn't go to school. And I'm smarter than them anyway. So I disenrolled from the really good school. And I enrolled at a Pennsylvania State School. Didn't help. So, um, yeah, not my shining moment. So I promise this is how the story builds up. So I get there. It's a Division One wrestling team. I didn't let the coach know I was coming. I showed up, walked on, won a starting spot through uh, WrestleOps. Proceeded to get thumped, frankly. I was good enough to get on a team, Division One, not good enough to win a lot. So that first year was a little painful. Then you were at the right level. Good I place was, to learn. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I did get a little better, frankly. But So I was there two years, but what I forgot to do was actually go to school because I walked around convinced <laughs> my SAT score is 350 points higher than all of you. You're all morons. I don't actually want to be here. So I was there to wrestle and you know do the social stuff. And after two years, I was out. Well, at that same time as coming home, in a fair level of disgrace, my dad was diagnosed with um, stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I was home. So this is what, you know, I was about 19 going into 20. So I, you know, worked a bunch of odd jobs, started coaching wrestling at the school that I went to, which was frankly, mildly, mildly embarrassing, right? Humili you know, kind of humiliating. You know, the end of season of wrestling is something called districts and then regionals and states. I was at districts with some of my kids coaching and the guy who tried to recruit me to Moravian, who I spurned came up beside me, grabbed me by the shirt, and was like, what the F are you doing? Why aren't you in school? You know, I said, well, I, I, I flunked out. Well, you were pursuing something different, though. You had aspirations around wrestling. Yeah, yeah. I was very successful at what I went to school for. It just was yeah. not school. So that guy said, you're coming to Moravian. I was like, okay, that sounds pretty good. And so um, they forced me to take a summer class because while they were very happy for me to you know, go two years earlier, they were less than impressed with my performance the following two years. 
And then five days before I enrolled, and would have started playing football again because it was Division Three. So I was big enough to play Division Three football. Definitely not Division One. My dad passed away. That winds us all the way to this idea that being in a spot where you're looking around and you're thinking, "Geez, can I make it?" Right? I had real questions. I had real questions when I walked on the mat at Shippensburg. Real questions when I went to Moravian. I thought, "Well, can I cut it?" Same thing. And you know, like you get into it and you start having some success. You find one or two teachers. We're like, hey, that was really good. And called you on your nonsense. Like I'd make excuses for myself or mail it in. That was done. I had the exact same thing happen when I was at Auburn. Going to ship, being out of my out of my depth, working out fine. Going to Moravian, being out of my depth, working out fine. And then when I w- arrived at Auburn, you know, the pipe dream to go to graduate school was born out of, I was doing this residential psychiatric treatment stuff, which was remarkable, just remarkable, just from a sense of, well, one, what humans can do to each other was horrific and its impact on kids trying to, you know, take care of them. But just, we were all so passionate. We were all young. People go off and do Teach for America or Peace Corps. Or, you know, just, and they just did the most amazing things. But everybody's young and passionate about it. But we had no idea how to run the place. I mean, the thought that they gave me one of those units when I was like 22, or maybe just about to turn 23 is astonishing. So invaluable, but man, flying blind, right? I mean, just just winging it. And so that's why I felt like, okay, I better go, I better go learn something. And so that was the point of getting the MBA at night. And when I was doing that, I thought, you know, I really like, I really like explaining why people behave the way they do. It is actually, I really like enjoying it, but I could do it at work. And in particular, in a corporate setting, it just struck me when we were really studying strategy and particularly HR stuff, well, plans were interesting, but none of it mattered at all if people didn't actually do it, right? I mean, you know, what's the thing that gets in the way? Uh, it, it's like, it's the people stupid, right? The people get in the way. They make it work and or they make it not work. So that was the, that was the real genesis of my saying, hey, uh, I think I'm going to go to a PhD. And I really want to research and study. So I went to Auburn. I went to my first I went to my first meeting at Auburn in some faculty's house. I left there with my then wife and said, boy, do I have no business being here. I am so out of my league. They were speaking a different language. I didn't yet realize that actually what was going to end up becoming one of my real strengths, which was quantitative rigor, I actually ended up being really, really good at method and quantitatively and really, really doing you know good social science. I'm starting to sense a pattern of you finding yourself out of your depth in an area and then it becoming your strength. Yeah, how about it? How about it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, part of it, you know, if we were to dissect me, I'm a classic insecure overachiever. There's no doubt about it. My work achievement's off the chart, right? I really do need to win. Like, I won't throw a game with my children. I never have. I, it doesn't mean I won't help them to learn the game, but I won't ever throw it because I don't think I'll learn anything by that. I do have a really high sense on dependability that if I make a commitment, you know, my say-do ratio has to be high. I'm narcissistic enough that I want to, you know, I want to be seen to be doing well, you know, and insecure enough to think it can all be taken away. Now, obviously, that's probably has to do with some level of loss of trauma in my life. But, you know, you get a little bit of the imposter syndrome going on. But that combo is awesome for getting people to work really hard. That's true. And, and also getting people to be very loyal. You've stayed at McKinsey for 19 years. Yeah. That's unusual. That's an unusual career path. It is. And, you know, it's interesting. I was really close to leaving. Very, very close to leaving, primarily because I wanted to come off the road. And I, I had an opportunity that I thought was too good to be true. Now, it turned out to be too good to be true, and it didn't work out. But the way the firm responded to my saying, look, I love the firm, but I want to come off the road. And then when I said, hey, I'm not going to leave, and the even more amazing response and giving me a green light to sort of reshape what I was doing. I mean, I'm, I'm a lifer, right? I'm, I'm So I love it. It's a playground. It's an intellectual playground. I mean, I've gotten to see you know gold mines that I drove a half hour to get to the bottom to. I've been inside a nuclear reactor, a completed nuclear reactor, right? I've crawled around fossil, the largest fossil power plant in the United States. I was at, I'm at the largest refinery in the United States when it was being built, 
I mean, I've been able to do some really cool stuff. So yeah, I'm lucky. I am really lucky. It sounds like you're also good at influencing up inside of an organization and, and getting, getting agreement into what you want done. For sure. I mean, my persistence helps. I do think this is where, you know, resilience matters. I'm subtly impatient about the paying one's dues because that starts sounding less like a meritocracy and a little bit more like just, you know, put your time in the next person up. I actually I abjectly just reject anything that looks like that. I don't buy into that at all. You know, I think for me and the people, you know, sir, I work closely enough where they looked after who we call the crew affectionately. We've reached down and made, I'm on the committee now that elects partners in McKinsey Parlance, what we call PCEC. And I'm so pleased with how almost tenure blind we are and that you find brilliance and you cultivate brilliance and it doesn't matter. That is wonderful to hear. And it, it's, it's rare to find a company where you can do that effectively. Yeah. You know, I think it's one of the things we do really well. There's a lot of things we're not great at. I would say most, most administrative processes, most of us would say we've got some room to go. Talent, I think we're pretty good. I mean, I think we've cultivated good brands. I think from the moment people interact with us through the recruiting process, we try to communicate very clearly. We think they're special. We believe we're special. And it's a choice on both sides. You know, it's not, oh, you're lucky to be here. And for sure, I mean, I still drink the Kool-Aid on meritocracy. You know, you are judged. You are judged on your merit. It is a committee of record. And I, I swear to you, sit here, and let, you know, I, I buy into the idea. All that matters is who you are as a person. And do you live up to the values? Can you do the work? Do you have the intrinsics? And do you bring it every day? The way that cultivates, I believe, is followership and sponsorship. And that radiates up and radiates down. And I think I've been, I've been very lucky to have some amazing sponsors. And I think I've rewarded those sponsors with some pretty good performance, some real loyalty. And some real opportunity to scale their legacy as well, right? And get the benefit of seeing somebody on their crew do all right. So I, to me, it was mutually beneficial, but always as much social and emotional as it was transactional. You know, it's a challenging thing talking about meritocracy when, when we're both white males and we've both got a lot of privilege because of the society that we're in. And I know that that word has a double meaning for a lot of people because some people view it as an exclusionary thing. I'm curious how that has played out in your career. Yeah, well, listen, I mean, I have a partner who has been instrumental in me wrapping my head around privilege, no doubt about it. So if you think, you know, and I don't mind disclosing this, I think it's part of my art. I mean, I came from a poor set of teen parents. My dad was a printer. My dad died because he was a printer, because of the chemicals they used to clean the printing press. And he would drive farther and farther towards Philadelphia if he could get 50 cents more an hour. And so in my mind, I was the poor kid who crossed the tracks, right? And so no one helped me. I made sacrifice. I worked hard. And don't tell me about my privilege. Piss off. This is all about me. That is, of course, rather, it's of course rather naive, right? But it's the denizen of people who've come from that upbringing. So I have, I have sympathy when I hear people who have said that. But now think about the contrary. I'm a large guy. I think you can probably see this in the video a little bit, but I'm, you know, Six two and a half, maybe two thirty five, two forty. Now as a teenager, six two and a half, between one hundred eighty five and two hundred pounds, and Jack shaved head with a really short temper. That's a very scary picture to paint, right? Well, and, and, and aggressive, right? I mean, think about it. I was a wrestler and a football player, and interestingly enough, because I never wanted to appear too smart, I actually led with the physicality. So I got in a ton of fights. If you make me a black kid, I'm a menace, and I am. If I'm lucky, just getting bounced off cop cars. If I'm unlucky, I'm shot. That's, I, don't, I don't know how you call it any other way because you just changed my color and it's a problem. The number of people who took, you know, I was caddying at a local country club and there was a guy who ran a guy named Jim McCambridge. He was amazing. And our local federal judge, Judge Khan. So I got to carry for them and force them. And I got invaluable, invaluable insight from them. And even sometimes Jim McCambridge said to me, you're making a stupid mistake going to Shippensburg. It's like the dumbest thing you've ever done. <laughs> it was really, it was great. I was just caddy. 
Does that really happen if I'm not a white kid who's a friend of his stepdaughters? Right? Probably not. You know, so for me, anyway, you know, one of the things, and I, I, this is a great forum for me, we're talking about Becky has really helped me get my head around this. Yeah, I think privilege is there. And so how does that play out in McKinsey? I think, you know, I think the days of the old white guys being ignorant, that of course everybody has a free shake is absurd. Now I happen to work in a portion of McKinsey where I can say unabashedly, we are so much better at electing women than anyone else in the firm because of the nature of the work we do, right? The organization practice, right? Talent, culture, right? So all of us, you find these brilliant women who you get know, at Harvard and MIT and Carnegie and all these places, Stanford, you know, amazing athletes, musicians, and you get them and they're like, uh, yeah. And so you bozos couldn't come around to figure out how you run a place mattering, but we've been forced through, we've been forced by gender to pay attention to other people. So yeah, we're actually like ahead of this. It's, and they are, they are, they're better at all of it. Better natural leaders, right? They're not walking around thinking they're better than everyone else. I mean, all those jokes about like sort of a self-serving bias, like, oh, you know, 93% of males think they're above average in athletics. And this percentage, you know, 75% think they're better drivers. When you cut that by data, the effect nearly goes away for women. It's like an entirely male phenomenon. So, yeah, I mean, I'm in a part where I'm lucky enough. I am surrounded by amazing women. You know, our practice is co-led by a woman in Europe, in Mary Meany, who is just stunning professionally, just so good, has managed to be this great role model for having a bunch of kids and leading it. So, I feel really good about that in the part that I'm in in McKinsey, and I believe it's radiating out, right, for sure. And we've done, I think, the smart thing in sourcing and recruiting. You know, you, you can't actually move the needle on diversity if the places you go to to recruit have a pool that is already massively constrained, right? You know, so some of the B schools, like Wharton has some proclamations about it. I believe Harvard does as well. They're working on it. You can go to smaller schools where their top students are just as good as, number, as the top students at the other schools. They just don't go as deep, right? Where I'm in in Philadelphia. Swarthmore, Haverford, Bryn Mawr. But the kids at the, the top five kids at those schools aren't amazing. Of course they are. Of course they are. They're just not going to go as deep as Wharton. So you got to work at it. It's effort. It really is effort. And I think maybe the one thing about it, and I, and I don't say this to be, I swear to you, this is not intended to be trite. Do you know how I think you really make it work and make it stick? You don't make it an initiative. You make it just how you are. You demand that that's how you lead. And if you can't lead that way, you can't lead. I'm just convinced that if talent is the war you're in, you can't systematically ignore 52% of the population and think you're going to win the long game. That's absurd. Just absurd. It's true. Is that something that you address in the book? Uh, you know, no. The previous book, Talent Wins, it came out about. I've got some articles out on Talent Supply, much more directly labeled there. This one's a little bit more about change management. Okay. Getting back to the book, you're a co-author. And one of the things I noticed about you, I was looking through your blog on McKinsey. You do a lot of co-writing. And that is an unusual approach. Most most people who think about writing think about it as this very solitary act. Yep. And I'm curious how you came to that and how you approach it. Well, my actual writing is kind of boring. <laughs> I mean, the last time... <laughs> I doubt that, just listening to you speak. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you. I mean, you know what? Go, go get my dissertation and tell me what you think. I dusted it off a little while ago to show to one of my kids. And I was like, oh, I, I can't even subject you to this. No, so listen, I believe, I believe that I'm at my best when I have someone to problem solve with. I'm arrogant enough to believe I know, I know a lot about what we do, but I don't need me to be right. I need us to be right. And so I know we're far more likely to be right if I have people that I can kick ideas around with. That's one. Two, people have different skills. In this case, Scott, my co-author and was author on the, on the first book, his gift of language is exceptional. I mean, just so good, his turn of phrase. I think I'm pretty good verbally. He's good verbally and in writing. And so here, you know, the IP, if you will, you know, the, the essence behind the OHI, first versions of the influence model, the recipes, was either, you know, me and other various colleagues. So I think I'm anchored a little bit more on the science. 
And then both Scott and I have pretty long and robust track records of doing it. So it was a great partnership. But in general, I prefer to write with others because I'm lucky enough to be in a company where if you were to put us all in a distribution of smarts, I'm on the left side of that tail of McKinsey. And I am A-OK -okay with that. <laughs> How do you manage that relationship with people when you're, when you're co-writing? I really, really sweat the signature point and the outline and the dot dash. And then I don't pay a ton of attention to it until we get towards the end. In this book, there were three specific areas I, I, I wrote myself. I really wanted to write the recipes part. I wanted to write about how you set the health aspiration. And I, want, I had specific things I wanted to say about the influence model. So the IP area that I was closest to because I was there when we wrote it, because like I wrote it, right? Now, in the influence model, there was a broader group of us. But the OHI was a colleague and I, a guy named Matt Guthridge, long ago. And so there was, there was no reason to have anyone write it. But, but, but Scott... Scott is very gifted. And once we agreed the essence, you know, what was the master, what was the master stroke going to be? What was the counterintuitive point? What were the examples we we're going to use? It's fine. And, you know, we had a really great team behind us running the ground. I mean, this is, I got to tell you, I would say this is the most heavily cited, researched and sourced book coming out of a consulting firm that you could ever shake a stick at. It is unbelievable. It's far, it's far more buttoned up than any of the academic stuff. That's true. And it sounds like it's not really an enhancement of the original book. It sounds like it's almost a sequel. Yeah. You know, in, I, honestly, they told us originally, the publisher, you know, shoot for 25% new. We figure we're probably about 80, 85%. Was that demanded by the topic? Demanded by our experience, demanded by the evidence. I mean, you know, an essence of what we're saying here is follow what we tell you and you're going to flip the odds. I mean, going on 30 years, people are saying only 30% of change works. And we now say unabashedly and without reservation, follow this approach, and you're getting up close to 80. It's better than flip the odds. And we don't shy away from that at all. Those are facts. It's quantitatively backed up, and we feel pretty good about it. And that is a bold statement. I know that my listeners are going to want to find out more about this. Where can I send them to find out more about this book and about this uh, approach? Yeah, so on the McKinsey website, it's easy enough, right? You just write in Beyond Performance 2.0. We have a book page. You're just looking for the book or getting at it. The usual suspects, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You know, those kinds of places have it. But I might start at McKinsey, you know, get the overview. Scott and I have a nice recorded podcast to give you the headline to make sure that you're really interested. And then the articles that support it underneath are there as well. And what about you? Are you going out and speaking and lecturing on these things? I am. Yeah, I am. I will have no problem being global services again next year. No doubt about it. I'm touring. Cool. Where can people find out about those? Also on the website and or reaching out. And my, my link is there. And then we have a, an amazing woman, Ann Blackman, who leads Reach and Relevance for us and can, can set up where the uh, next sites are. Fantastic. Well, Bill, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. And thank you so much for opening up and sharing so much. Thank you for having me. It was great. Really appreciate it. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>